Yeah, well, Sakina, I mean, it's fair to say that the market didn't like it. Uh, we saw Sibania share price react really negatively after they released the, uh, the announcement um, after the market closed on Thursday. You know, we saw uh, immediately at the open of the market, Sibania shares opened lower, and it was just a one-way trek downwards from there uh, for the rest of the day, with the share ending down about uh, 15%. And that's even after <coughs> it recovered off some of its lows of down about 18%. So, Sakina, I mean, if we dissect this deal a little bit, you know, you'd understand why the market would be a bit jittery about this. Um, you know, $2.2 billion, that's a fairly significant number, or is a very significant number um, in Sibania's life. Uh, that's a 50.2 billion rand cash offer for the, uh, for the mine. Remember, there's no equity involved in this. And uh, at one point during the market trade on Friday, 30.2 billion rand was bigger than the entire market capitalization of Sibania Gold. So, I mean, it's fairly obvious that this is going to have to be funded through a rights offer and about $750 million um, of the $2.2 billion is touted to be raised in the rights office. So, uh, first of all, you know, the current shareholders wouldn't like the fact that it's going to be so, that, that the rights offers are always value dilutive, you know. So that's the first issue of uh, uh, why the share price reacted negatively. The second thing is that, um, you know, the market is trying to determine at what discount level will uh, the rights offer come in at for new, in order to entice new shareholders, in order to raise the capital uh, to complete this purchase. So, you know, there's a bit of that in the correcting in the share price. And then the other thing was that if we actually dissect the deal, Sakina, I mean, Sibania's expertise really lie um, in deep level, deep level labor-intensive mines, um, you know, very much akin to the platinum mines, which they snapped up in the Rustenburg area from Anglo-American platinum and from Aquarius platinum, um, you know, which were the sort of higher-cost producers in those miners, respective miners' stables, and they were looking to offload those and... Uh, you know, Sibania then got them at a good price and could vertically integrate and achieve economies of scale through having a number of uh, deep-level labor-intensive mines. And um, in achieving those economies of scale, uh, could really reduce the, the, the cost of getting the ounces out of the ground and bring uh, higher margins into that uh, industry uh, where the other plat platinum miners were battling to do so. Now, um, you know, this soiree into a very, very high-quality U.S. assets, um, you know, is not in, the, is not in management's experience. Experience, apart from possibly Neil Frontman, which has, who has had um, a run in the U.S., but essentially this is a very, very highly mechanized, a very low-cost, highly cash-generative producer. So you can kind of see the attraction that Sibania saw with it in terms of being high-quality, cash-integrated, or cash-generative and vertically integrated, should I say. So it's vertically integrated, meaning that uh, they own the mine and they own the mill as well to which uh, the raw material is sent for further processing. So so the bottom line here, Sakina, is that uh, the, this is not in Sibania's area of expertise. So the market is saying, well, you know, this sort of seems like Sibania is tr just trying to diversify their, uh, their very concentrated South Africa risk and are willing to pay too big a premium in order to do this. And um, they can't really achieve any economies of scale uh, in this operation because it's not like they have any other operations there. Um, so the margin accretion is not going to be possible here like it was with the Rustenburg mine, for example which they purchased from the other producers. And the second thing is that they're paying a fairly hefty premium at about uh, a 23% premium uh, to Stillwater's closing price in the U.S. on Thursday. So, you know, all these factors, Sakina, in the current very uncertain environments with all the uncertainty going around and with, uh, you know, investors very wary of, about JSC companies overpaying for offshore assets. And, uh, you know, we've really learned our lesson on that this year as the RAND has strengthened and we've been able to determine, um, you know, which was
were the good offshore purchases and which were the offshore purchases which just relied on RAND weakness. Um, and, you know, there's a, a couple of question marks over how this is going to be funded and at what level the rights issue is going to have to come in. And then, Nadir, there's a strong rotation from growth-orientated uh, investing to value-orientated investing. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it's an interesting one, Sakina, because, uh, you know, it's a, over a rolling one-year period, um, we now see value investing, outperforming growth investing for the first time since December 2009. So, you know, that's a long period. Uh, we saw growth investing being in favor uh, for the longest period of about seven years, December 2009, and this was both in the JSE as well as globally. Now, what we've seen is that, uh, you know, as these multiples started get, uh, getting more and more expensive and investors started getting more and more jittery about uh, the ability of some of these growth companies to deliver um, on the earnings numbers needed in order to warrant the current multiples, uh, we saw a big rotation of capital out of these growth stocks and into the value stocks. And this was really precipitated by two factors, Sakina. The first thing being that uh, a number of these growth companies, uh, as they reported results through the course of the year, it became increasingly apparent that they were disappointing in terms of their earnings growth numbers. And, uh, you know, that really disappointed the market. And the second factor was that, um, you know, a lot of the value stocks uh, simply got too cheap. Now, a number of people say that, well, you know, it's the resource stocks which are really the value stocks, and, uh, you know, but it's not, it wasn't just about the resources play. You know, a number of SA incorporated businesses, uh, be it the banks, be it some of the construction companies, um, you know, got exceedingly cheap on the JSE uh, towards the end of last year, and, uh, you know, it all culminated in Nenegate uh, just about a year ago, where we saw those stocks selling off vociferously and re- uh, reaching, uh, you know, multi-year lows in terms of a multiple and still paying out fairly decent dividend yields, particularly in the case of the banks. Um, so these two factors really came together to see this big rotation of capital out of growth and into value. And, you know, if we still look at it as where we stand today and what do we expect moving forward, um, at the end of the day, still about 60% of the JC trades below a 15 multiple, you know. So the opportunities do exist in terms of uh, ongoing value in the value space, despite the big rally we've seen this year. Um, it's just about being selective in that space. And like I said, many people confuse value investing with South Africa and the current environment with investing in resources. And you know, I don't think that's necessarily the case. There's a number of opportunities outside of the resource space. And uh, you know, I think, at least for the time being, while we have all this uncertainty in the global economy and while we have earnings growth very difficult to come by on the JSE, um, you know, I think that we're still going to continue to see this rotation, big rotation of capital into value investing and value investing continuing to perform into the start of 2017 and onwards. And then, of course, that oil price, Nadir, uh, the significance of that agreement reached between OPEC and non-OPEC producers, and we can see what the oil price is doing, but uh, how far can it go? You know, Sakina, this is actually a very interesting deal, because um, if you look at Russia and Saudi Arabia, they're pretty much on polar opposite ends of every other political issue globally except this issue, which gives you an indication of just how desperate all oil producers are for a deal in order to see the oil price receiving some sort of support and uh, their finances recovering somewhat from a really battered position uh, from the oil price selling off from over $100 a barrel. Um, so if you look at it, uh, you know, OPEC is committed to cutting just over a million barrels a day of production, and non-OPEC 
OPEC members have joined um, that call for cuts in production by saying, well, we'll cut about 568,000 barrels of uh, production a day. And this is between, uh, obviously led by Russia, which is the majority of that, cutting about 300,000 barrels a day, um, and the rest of the non-OPEC members following suit as well. Um, Sakina, I think, you know, the bottom line here is that there's still a lot of overhang in the oil markets uh, from the, the period of glut, um, you know, when it was these very uh, OPEC nations which were trying to squeeze out the high-cost shale producers um, and were running at full tilt in an economy which wasn't exactly uh, moving along at bolstering pace. So, you know, there still is a fair amount of supply uh, or supply glut or overhang in the oil market, but this cut in production will definitely help um, to eat into those uh, excess inventories and eventually bring the oil market into balance. I suppose the big question now, Sakina, is that are all the players going to stick to what they've committed to do? Um, you know, we've seen uh, these packs. The last time we saw this pack between OPEC and non-OPEC was uh, at the turn of the century about 16 years ago, uh, where we had the exact same issue. And what ultimately happened is that after a couple of months, both sides of the coin just started cheating and ramping up production. So I suppose the big, the big issue now, Sakina, is that are these nations going to be able to stay disciplined in terms of the cuts that they've committed to? Um, and if they do stay disciplined in terms of the cuts that they've committed to, then we could see an oil price um, being sustained about uh, or in and an, 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 an slightly above $60 a barrel for 2017. But oh, the big caveat there um, is these nations maintaining these supply cuts which they've promised. And uh, just a parting shot there from uh, Mangaliso Ngobo, who says, I just hope Sibanye will not get their fingers burned from this deal uh, because diversifying sometimes means taking major risks.